Bibles now and open them to Revelation chapter 18. And this evening we're continuing with this 18th chapter, which gives us details about God's plan to destroy the wicked empire of the Antichrist. The Bible refers to his empire as Babylon. It is the successor to the first human evil government that was formed about two generations after the flood. In Scripture, we always find that there are two ways of life. We've noted that in our study of Matthew. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. There is a road to life and there's a road to destruction. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. And there never is any deviation from that theme. All the way through Scripture, it remains the same. The Scriptures teach that you are either one or the other. You're either in darkness or light. You either know Christ or you don't know Christ. And that distinction was noted very early on, way back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, in what is called the Proto-Evangelium. And that was when uh, God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And that is the division that has been with us all the way since the very beginning. It's those who are the seed of the woman, and that means Christ, and those who are believers in Christ, and those who are the seed of the devil. And those are the only two possibilities that you'll ever find. And so anything in the world that is against God is always from Satan. Anything in the world that's for God is always from the Holy Spirit. All the world systems are wrapped into Satan's kingdom which is known as Babylon. And so it's God's intention that he's going to destroy the kingdom of Satan, and he's promised that he will restore the world to the condition of innocence that it was in in the Garden of Eden. And this is the book of the Bible. Here in Revelation, it tells us how God is going to do that. The world will be purged of sin, all evil men, all evil angels, all the powers of darkness, and even Satan himself will be destroyed forever in the fires of hell. And our study of Revelation, we're here in the closing chapters, and this describes the devastation of that last satanic kingdom that rules the world. And this is the destruction of Babylon that we find in chapter 18. The first three verses of the chapter announce the doom. There is an angel that steps out from heaven, and with a shout he declares, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And there we find the irreversible judgment of God. Babylon is about to be blasted. But before this happens, there is another angel that comes on the scene, and he has one last warning for the people of Babylon. This is what we find beginning in verse number 4. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read the word. We'll look at verses 4 through 8. Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 through 8. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of this word tonight. Lord, open our hearts to what you'd have us to get from these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the last message, we noted verse number 4, which we called the call to separate. And this is the final call for anyone who is left in Babylon, who doesn't want to be caught in the destruction of that city, to come out before God completely obliterates it. Now, some have said that what we find in verse number 4 is an evangelistic call, that here God is still offering the gospel to those that are in Babylon, But I'm not sure if that's actually correct because it appears to me that with everything that we've gone on and it's gone on here and everything that we've been through in studying up to this part in Revelation, that anyone who is going to believe in Christ has already done that. And all the previous judgments that have been brought on Babylon have only served to do one thing, and that is to harden the hearts of these people even more against God. And so what I believe that we see here is actually people that have already received Christ, but perhaps they have gone undetected living in Babylon. And perhaps they've tried to compromise somewhat with that Babylonian system, and they've been able to fly under the radar of the Antichrist for a time. But now that God is going to destroy that city, God gives a call for them to come out. Now, perhaps these are like Christians that we know today that have not fully separated from the world. They haven't divorced themselves from the world's culture and turned away from that, but rather there are Christians that are always trying to walk that fine line between sin and sanctification. And it's sad to say that there are church members who live that way. I think we find some that are in Brian, and uh, some of those members are the ones that are usually the most trouble to the pastor and to the church. And so there are people that get involved in things like gossip and tail-bearing and backbiting. There are people that are easily angered over certain things. And they really don't add anything to the ministry that we do here in the church. They're really busy adding to our woes. And the Bible describes them as backslidden Christians. Now, disgruntled church members have always been a problem since the very beginning from the inception of the church. The apostles had to deal with it. The apostle Paul dealt with it. Uh, Peter dealt with it. James dealt with those types of people. John dealt with them. And in Corinth, Paul had to call them out in a very similar way that he does to that happened that we see here in the book of uh, Revelation because the Corinthian church was, was particularly a problem to him. And so in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians rather, Paul says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And that was after Paul telling them that God's people cannot agree with infidels. He said those that are in the light cannot fellowship with darkness. He said there is no agreement between Christ and Belial. And so what we might have here in Revelation is actually a warning that Christians have become comfortable in Babylon. And just like Christians, and uh, or rather going back to Israel, that when they were in ancient Babylon, they had to be called out of that place. And many of those people had become comfortable there. And when God told them that he was going to destroy Babylon, some of them wanted to stay. They didn't want to come back to Israel and take their rightful place there as God's people. They enjoyed the comforts of Babylon. And so they weren't eager at all to leave there. And that's a problem that we have with Christians that have fallen in love with the world system. Now, we as Christians love luxury as much as the next guy. Uh, We don't like trouble. We don't like hardships to come in our lives. We like things to be easy for us. And so a little compromise with the world, that doesn't seem to be such a bad thing, or at least that's the way that we think. 
The truth of the matter is that God never accepts that. God wants complete devotion. He gave all when he sent Christ into the world to die for us, and he wants all from everybody that has received Christ. And that's actually a very fair exchange. It's what the apostle Paul wrote when he was speaking to the, to the Romans. He called that reasonable service. And he said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And he said, this is reasonable service. Christ is a dying sacrifice. He was a dying sacrifice. And it's only reasonable that we who are the people of God should be a living sacrifice for him. So this is the final call that's issued. If there are any of God's people that are still in Babylon, now's the time for them to get out so they won't partake of the judgment. So he says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So that is the call to separate. Now I want to go on this evening to a second observation from this angel's announcement. And secondly, we see the cry not to spare. In verse 5 it says, For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. And the cup which she had filled, fill to her double. Now I believe that is one of the most intriguing parts of Bible study. We can see how the, the Bible is so masterfully woven together. Now, recently I was asked to defend the statement that the Bible is God's Word rather than a collection of men's writings. How do we know that the Bible has really been inspired by God? Well, there are actually several answers to that question, and it's not my purpose tonight to speak to you about the veracity of the Bible, but I will say this much, that there is no possible way that the many writers of Scripture could have been anything other than inspired. When you look at the amount of time that, uh, over which the Bible was written, 1,500 years separates the first scriptures that were written from the last ones that were written. Uh, separated by distance, many of the writers had never met the others. And yet as they write the scriptures, we find out, separated by hundreds of years and often by hundreds of miles, when travel is slow and arduous, these people still come to the very same conclusions and they write with very perfect cohesion. And so there never is a contradiction in Scripture. There's no disagreement among them. They write with details that are impossible for anyone to know unless God should have been directing them as they wrote those things down. Now, you might not recognize it at first, but we have an example of this in verse number 5. Now, it's just a small detail, but God is in the details. Not the slightest one is overlooked. And notice verse number 5 again. For her sins have reached unto heaven... And God hath remembered her iniquities. Now the scripture ties, this one ties future Babylon of the Antichrist to post-flood Babel that was the first man-made government. Her sins have reached unto heaven. Now the literal rendering of that passage is her sins are glued together like brick upon brick until they have reached unto heaven. And so there we have an unmistakable allusion to the Tower of Babel that was built by Nimrod just after the flood. Nimrod's intention was that he would build a tower that would reach into heaven. And in Genesis chapter 11 it says, And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, that was a tower of idolatrous worship. Its intent was to make gods of the stars and of the, of the sun and of the moon. Those were their deities instead of Jehovah God. 
That's where we got astrology. It's where we got mythology. And God destroyed that tower. But unlike that tower that couldn't reach unto heaven, here we find in verse number 5 that the sins of Babylon have actually reached that entire distance. The sins have reached all the way up to the throne of God, and God is not going to stand that any longer. He won't spare the wicked. As Peter said, that God has reserved the unjust to the day of judgment. And Paul said that the wicked treasure up wrath against the day of wrath, which is the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And God himself said that he was not going to clear the guilty. And so there is just a little detail out of hundreds of places in the text of the Word of God that ties all things together with divine precision. Now let us, let's notice here some characteristics of this plan for judgment. The first one is sure remembrance of sin. Now, there is a marked contrast between the way that God sees his children and the way that he sees others. And since there's always that difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of Satan, and since there's always a differentiation between darkness and light, and since there's always a separation between sheep and goats, then we can expect that there will be a difference in the treatment of sin between those that are believers and those that are unbelievers. Now, God has made a wonderful promise to every believer, and that promise is he says that he will forgive us of all of our sins. And that promise was demonstrated to Israel, and Israel confessed their sins. They were restored to God. Peter recalled that promise when he was preaching to Cornelius. Only when Peter was preaching, he added a marvelous little twist to that. He said, the people of God include both Jews and Gentiles. And if there's anyone who confesses that God is true Jehovah God, there is one God, then he will receive forgiveness. In Acts 10, 43, Peter says to him, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So that is a promise from God. We are going to have all of our sins forgiven. But then God goes even beyond that, and he tells us that every sin that we have committed against him will be disposed of. All of those sins are going to be erased from the records. All of them are blotted out. So that when we stand in judgment before God, there is no sin that can ever be recalled to our account. Now, God tells us that he removes those as far as the east is from the west. And so when we're called into the judgment, not one sin will be remembered. All that slate has been wiped completely clean, and it's been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the impenitent, those who do not believe, receive a much different promise. And the promise that they receive is just as sure as the other, only it's not a favorable promise because to them, God says that he will remember every sin. And that's the direct opposite of what he promised to believers. To us, he says, I'm not going to remember any of your sins. And to those who don't trust Christ, he says, I'm going to remember every single one of your sins. I've got a record of those. I will not forget them. Now, that is a very serious charge, and because it is, we need to understand what God is saying very clearly. Never committing or never forgetting a sin means that every sin is going to be called up continuously for punishment. You see, there is no such thing as an unbeliever getting rid of his sin, not even after this life. Hell itself does not rid a person from his sins. There is continuous punishment for sin. The only way that sin is ever removed is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Even punishment in hell does not remove a person's sin. Now, we often say that when people go to hell, that they go there to pay for their sins. 
And that's a common expression, but you really need to understand what that means because, strictly speaking, that's a little bit off because you can never pay for your sins. Hell is a place of punishment for sin. Now, in our system of jurisprudence, a a person may receive a, a sentence for a crime, and after so long of a period of time, we consider that the debt has been paid. And so we say, well, he paid his debt to society. And so that person is then released from prison. But that doesn't happen with God. No one could ever stay in hell long enough to pay for the first sin, much less all of the sins that he's committed. And that's why we actually needed the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ, who could bear infinite punishment to take the punishment of hell for us. Because he's the only one that actually could pay for sin in that way. And so it's impossible for us to do it. Now, with the lost, then, there's this continual remembrance of sin, and not one of them escapes God's watchful eye. He records all of those sins. He has a promise that he's never going to forget a one of them. And so that means that every sin committed would have to increase the degree of punishment in hell. Now, think about that for just a moment. Uh, We pile crimes on top of crimes, and what we do is we just increase the length of the sentence. For instance, if you commit battery in the commission of a theft, that you'll receive a sentence or receive time for the battery and time for the theft. So you might get a year for committing battery and then get two years for committing the theft. So you have three years of sentence altogether. If you did something else, then the judge would pile that on top of that and give you a little bit more time. But God doesn't work that way because the commission of sin requires eternal punishment. Even one sin And so you could never tack on time to eternity. That's an impossible thing to do. And so the way that God deals with this is that he increases the degree of punishment according to the number of sins that a person commits. Now, if you want to read Christ's uh, declaration of that principle, you can go over to Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 48, where Jesus is speaking about one servant that's beat with many stripes and another servant that's beat with fewer stripes. Now here, in this scripture, we see that these sins have piled all the way up to heaven, and God has let those fill up till he comes to the place he won't take anymore. Now the Bible tells us that God is long-suffering towards us. He's long-suffering towards sin. He permits a lot of things to go on in this world where he doesn't just snap his fingers and destroy us all. God's given people time to repent of their sins. But there's coming a day when God is not going to do that any longer. God will be filled up. All of those sins will be filled up, piled as high as heaven, and then God says, no more. Here's where it stops. And then God lets down. He lowers that hammer of judgment upon this world. Now, secondly, we see here strong retribution for sin. Verse 6 says, reward her even as she rewarded you, and double under her double according to her works. In the cup which she had filled, fill to her double. I want to take you back for just a moment to our study in the Sermon on the Mount. There in Matthew 5, 38, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. We were careful when we were studying this passage to point out that Jesus had no intentions of setting aside this Old Testament law. The Old Testament said an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. And that's part of God's righteous law. It was righteous when God gave it. That law is still righteous today. It's a law that stands good for all time. And there's a term that we apply to that. It's called lex talionis. 
And the simple way of putting that is that the punishment must fit the crime. That's what that means. Now, when Jesus was speaking there in Matthew, uh, he was showing them that these people, that, that this particular law is not intended for personal revenge. And he says, it's not your right to seek revenge upon someone who has personally injured you. But on a governmental side, this is something that must be done. This law must be carried out. It has to be obeyed, and that's one of the reasons why we support capital punishment. In fact, lex talionis is a standard of law that's used by many governments across the world. But we notice that there's something unusual about the punishment that God is going to inflict upon Babylon, or at least it seems a little bit unusual at first, because the, Babylon, uh, the punishment of Babylon's sins is not tit for tat. It's not lex talionis. Instead, God says double punishment. Now, was that ever allowed under the laws of God? Well, interestingly, it was. Now, before I get to that, I, I want to show you that we practice the very same thing today, that we double up punishment sometimes. An example of that is seen every single day when you drive down Highway 101. When you enter into a construction zone, which is almost everywhere, perpetually for all time, you, you enter into a construction zone there, and you'll see a sign that says, Double Fines for Speeding. Now, trust me on this, the single fine is bad. That's personal experience. I'll tell you, that's a bad one. But the double fine, that's really bad. And that, that'll, that'll put you in the poor house and cause your kids not to eat for weeks when you get the double fine. So why do they do that? Why do they do that? Well, that's a safety issue for the workers. You, you hit a construction worker or you kill somebody who's working on a construction project because you've been speeding through one of those zones and the government is going to crack down on you and they're going to give you a punishment that's so stiff that you're going to wish that you would never, had never done it and you won't do it again. Now, in the Mosaic Law, there were also those kinds of provisions. Now, let me just read one of them to you from Exodus chapter 22. If a man steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, there's a very stiff penalty. If you get caught doing this, then you're going to pay dearly for it. Now, in this case, the penalty is, is stiff because of the value of livestock. That livestock represented a man's livelihood. So if you stole his ox and you killed it or you sold it to someone else then you, and that ox couldn't be recovered, then what you have done is you have stolen that man's ability to feed his family. You've taken away his ability to farm. And so God says if you're guilty of something like that, you're going to have to pay five times for killing that man's ox, four times for killing a man's sheep because you've robbed him of his livelihood. And he said, but if you steal it and you return it, then you're still going to get a double penalty for that. Now, that really shows us the heinousness of Babylon's sin. Why is their sin so terrible as opposed to all the other sins that are committed throughout the history of the world? Why Babylon? Why is it so bad? Well, we have to look at what God has already done to show them how evil that they are and how that they should repent. There have been judgments that have been falling all over the place, these people have watched the judgments of God fall, and all they did was to stiffen their neck and to resist God with impunity. They hear what God says, but what they do is they just brush him off like a yapping little dog, and they pay no attention to him at all. Now, if you speed in the construction zone, the government comes down hard, and the reason they do is because they warned you about it. They put all the warning signs up there. They put up cones. They put up the hazard lights. They're flagmen. They're barriers. They're There's no mistaking where you are when you get caught. 
You've been given all the warnings. And so if you get caught doing it, they say, you're going to pay double for this. And this is exactly what we see here. God has warned these people in the time of tribulation. He's warned them with all the judgments that have fallen upon them. But not only has God done that, but God has been warning people all the way back since the Garden of Eden. It wasn't long after that, a few hundred years, and what did God do? He sent a flood to destroy the entire world because of wickedness. And God gave that warning. And then God gave us a book where he has recorded many, many different times the punishments that he brought upon people because they resisted him, because they rejected him, because they sinned against him. All of those punishments are recorded in the Word of God so we can read them, so we have all the warning that we need. God sent the people prophets. And they came and they preached to Israel. They preached to others and told them they needed to repent of their sins, but they still resisted and they went on in idolatry. Then God sent his own son. And when Jesus came, he did miracles like we talked about this morning. He authenticated the fact that he was the Son of God. And yet they took Christ and they crucified him. Now I want to go over to Matthew chapter 21. If you turn there for just a minute, I want to show you this. Um, You remember that Jesus said that the cities that were around Galilee, he said, if they had seen all the miracles that I did, those Gentile cities like Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented and they would have turned to God. He also said that if Sodom, if that city had been able to see the mighty works that he had done, that they also would have repented of their sins. Now look in Matthew 21 and we'll see how he illustrates what God will do when there has been so much warning and yet there has been no repentance. Beginning in verse 33, he says to them, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did to them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, the vineyard cometh, what will he do to those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now there's a whole lot said there, and the message here is actually about Israel rejecting Christ. Prophets were sent, they wouldn't hear them. They beat the prophets, they stoned them, they killed them. But God was long-suffering towards Israel, and even though they wouldn't hear prophet after prophet that he had sent, still God sent them his only son, and when he came, they crucified him. Now, Jesus let these people know that that rejection of him had actually sealed their punishment. Now, he says they had become offended in him. Uh, He bruised them. He bruised their religious system. They stumbled at him, and they fell 
But when they come into judgment, they won't break a few bones now by falling on Jesus. But instead, he is that massive foundation stone who will fall on them. And here the scripture says he will grind them to powder. And that's the message that we find here in Revelation chapter 18. Warning after warning is given. Plague after plague has hit them. And they know that it's God's judgment. They admit that it is. But still they won't repent. They go further and further into sin. They eat. They drink. They're merry. They live it up. They take sin to the max. And finally God says, no more. This is going to end. And so the angel says, fill it up double. He's speaking here to God. Fill it up double. Fill the cup of wrath double and dump it out on them. They've vigorously persecuted your people, and now, God, give it to them in your untempered wrath. And so what we find here is a time of judgment, not a time of mercy. Time for mercy is over. All the time that they ever needed to repent of their sins, that's all gone. And they still went on stubbornly in their sin. Now, there's a little taste of this in in Psalm 137. Uh, Psalm 137 was written during the Babylonian captivity, and And in that psalm, Israel mourns over the loss of the temple. They they mourn over the loss of Jerusalem. And so they cry out to God for vengeance. Now, the last part of that psalm says, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Oh, that's a harsh statement, isn't it? That's a tough one there. Babylon will be repaid. Open defiance against God will be repaid with a double portion of God's wrath. Now then thirdly, there is a, another point that we need to make about this cry, and that's the swift retaliation upon sinners. Now the judgment has been a long time coming. Now, we started out here tonight talking about the Garden of Eden and what happened there, and you have all these many years of human history. We don't know how far this is going into the future. It's still distant from us now. But when it comes, it's not going to be long and drawn out. When this cry is heard, the judgment is already on its way. And there's only enough time for these holdover Christians that are still in Babylon to get out of that place. If they don't want to be destroyed with it, they've only got a short time to get away because God is bringing that judgment upon them swiftly. Now, that judgment is actually paralleled in Daniel chapter 5. I don't have time to read all of that now, but let me just relate the story to you. It's familiar to you. This is when Belshazzar was king of Babylon, and he ignored what God had done with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, was driven off the throne, and God sent him out, drove him crazy, drove him mad, sent him out into the wilderness, into the fields, and he ate grass like an ox. His hair grew out like eagle's feathers. His fingernails became like bird's claws. So Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, and he had to admit that there is a true God in heaven. God sets up kingdoms, and God tears kingdoms down. And so now Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar sits on the throne, and he's there blaspheming, he's partying, he's carrying on, and he has ignored what God said to his father. And so in that drunken feast, there was a hand that appeared writing on the wall, and that scared Belshazzar nearly to death. The words wrote, were written that said, Meeny, meeny, tickle you farzen. And Daniel interpreted that, those words to mean, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and he has finished it. You are weighed in the balances and you are found wanting. And so your kingdom is going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. And it happened. On that very night, it happened. 
Belshazzar was killed, and Darius the Mede took the kingdom from him. So that was swift judgment. God was through with what was happening in Babylon then, and he was fed up with it. And when those words were read on the wall, the judgment was already in place. There was no stopping it. It was already done. God had decided it would be done. Now, friends, I don't see how that we sitting here tonight can read this without thinking about what we as Americans are doing. Now, America is not in Bible prophecy, uh, but I do think the principles that we read in God's Word can be applied. We've squandered opportunity after opportunity to serve God. God has given us the ability in this country like no one has ever had before. He's blessed us. He's given us all we need. Not only all we need, but God has given us abundance on top of what we need. No one in the history of the world has seen what the average American person has today. Now, what we've done with that, though, is nothing but to spit in God's face. And so what we do is we bite the hand that feeds us. We throw the Bible out of our schools. We make it a crime to pray in the name of Jesus. Public displays of our faith have been outlawed, forbidden in public places. So we've just refused God. And all the time that we do that, Babylon can build their mosque... And they build them under the protection of our government, and you dare not apply the very same rules to them that you do to Christianity. And so when judgment comes, there are going to be a lot of people in America moaning and groaning, and they're going to wonder, how could judgment come to us? What do we do to deserve this? And they'll say, well, we were tolerant of everything. Look how nice we were. We were compassionate on Sodom. We let them have their parades. Yes, they could do all of that. We're soft enough to let Muslim clerics curse our government and then let them build their training camps, casting a shadow on the ones that they killed. We're solid enough to do that. We've opened up the door to every lifestyle imaginable. We've given all of our freedoms away like candy. So why are we being judged for that? So poor, poor, pitiful us. We are so stupid. And what we did, we polished the knife... We put a pearl handle on it, and we handed it to our enemy, and then we wonder why he slits our throat with it. That's how stupid that we are today. Well, let's see why things like that happen. Number three is the cause of this. The cause is sin. Now, there's two great sins that are seen in verse number seven. I'll, I'll get to these very quickly, and we'll be done here. The first one is pride. Look at that. How much she hath glorified herself. That's pride. See, God didn't create man to glorify himself. That's one of the reasons why I say, let's sing that song a little bit earlier. Let us glory in the cross. We don't glory in ourselves. God didn't create us to to glorify ourselves. Man deserves no glory. Now, what was the first uh, sin that entered into the world? That was pride, wasn't it? That was when Satan said, when he stood up there and stuck out his chest as proud as a peacock, and he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And ever since that time, men have taken that cue from Satan. And it only took Adam, what seems like about 30 seconds, to wrestle with pride and then be defeated with it. As soon as he heard those words, you shall be like God, then Adam was all in from that point. He was ready to go in sin. And folks, what we've done ever since that time is prance around to try and prove why we should be the top dog. So every single day of our life, what are people doing? Jostling for position in the world. All of us want to be on top of somebody else. You know, I wish I had time to deal with this, but this sin of pride is really part of 
of the church, as much a part of the church as baptism and chicken dinners. I mean, pride is a part of the church. And people are thinking all the time when they come to church, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? And so it's all about me. Instead of whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now, the second sin that comes out of that one is presumption. It flows out of the sin of pride. Here Babylon says, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. And there we have the sin of self-sufficiency. Who do I need? I don't need anybody else. I've got it all. The kings live deliciously with me. I have love affairs with all of them. I can't be a widow. I could never have sorrow. Everybody desires me. And that's what Babylon says. But what they But Babylon doesn't realize is that the loyalty only goes as deep as what people can get out of her. As long as Babylon has something to offer, people will be tried and true. But when the gravy train breaks down, it's a whole different story. People are nowhere to be found. You know, that reminds me also a lot about church. Because loyalty to God lasts as long as things are easy. If there is no pain involved with it, if there is no suffering that goes along with it, if there is no hardship that goes with it, then we'll stick with our church forever. We'll stay right here forever as long as it doesn't get too hard. God, we will serve you forever or until the good times stop rolling, whichever comes first. Folks, judgment is coming. Babylon will be blasted, and those that are still following Babylon wherever she goes are going to be caught in its destruction. And it's better for us to realize that right now than to find out about it later because whether you know it or not, eternity is a long, long, long time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We just ask you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and help us to understand, Lord, that there is eternity coming, that we would put all of our confidence, all of our hope in you. And, Lord, we know that you will sustain us, you will uphold us with your hand, and we thank you for that, Lord, that you're protection is upon us as your people and that lord the most precious thing that we can hold on to is eternity not what we have in this life may we serve you with reasonable service may we make our lives living sacrifices for you because you've given all for us bless our people tonight as we sing in jesus name we pray amen